Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Shmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Shannon Sarna. Shannon is the editor of the Jewish food blog, The Nosher. Her works have been featured in Edible Brooklyn, Parade, Tablet, and BuzzFeed, and she's the author of Modern Jewish Baker, Hala, Babka, Bagels, and more. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. Thank you for um, hopping out of the kitchen and joining me today. <laughs> curious to know how you found your way to baking. It's, uh, I, I think stories either are very um, linear or they zigzag quite a lot, and my story is a bit zigzagging, although I think when, when I reflect back on it, it makes perfect sense. Um, the, my, my grandfather was a food chemist for General Foods, and um, food was very pervasive in my family. I'm also a child of an interfaith marriage. My mom was a nice Italian girl from Brooklyn who went to all-girls Catholic school until she was 18, which is probably the reason she met and married my father, a not-so-nice Jewish boy from Yonkers. And so having <clears throat> these dual cultures in my life um, was also a major influence sort of around, around food, I think. One of the things that Jews and Italians or, you know, Greeks or, like, insert ethnic people in America into, into that plot is that, you know, food and culture and family um, are all very important. And food and family and our culture were very important. So I grew up sort of in this mishmash of, you know, eggplant parm and matzo ball soup and kind of everything in between. My mom loved to bake. I spent a lot of time baking with her in the kitchen, and she taught me how to make a lot of Italian food. And my dad loved to cook, and we spent Jewish holidays with um, with my grandparents. That's just kind of the foundation. And then I was like a theater brat who did musical theater until I was until uh, I was about twenty. And then I studied political science and Spanish at the college nearby you guys in Northampton. I moved to Washington D.C. I worked in politics for a little while. And I quickly found my way, actually, to the Jewish nonprofit world. Around the same time that all this was happening, uh, meaning my, you know, formative teenage into 20s years, I started baking challah around the time my mom died, kind of as a way to just bake and do something positive and connect and do something fun with my siblings. And um, and I just kept baking challah until I got really good at it. But um, it didn't become really a professional calling until uh, until I moved back to New York in my mid twenties to work for Edgar Bromson. And at the time, I was doing a lot of writing for him and for the foundation, and I really needed to work on my writing. So I started a food blog. I did some other things too, like take classes and really try to improve the diversity of my writing. But I figured the more I was writing, the better. And I was already cooking and baking a lot and experimenting with challah and already fusing, you know, my multicultural background into food and into Shabbat foods especially. And so I started writing down my recipes and telling some stories on a food blog. A year into that endeavor, uh, myjewishlearning.com reached out to me and said, hey, we love what you're doing. We want to start our food blog. Would you do it with us? That was about eight and a half years ago, and that's when the Nasha was born. So um, now I look back and I say, well, you know, food was so important in my family, and um, celebrating food was so important. So, of course, I'm so happy I'm a food writer, and I get to tell stories 
from people all over the world through the Nasher and, of course, you know, through my, my first book. Um, but, you know, majored in Spanish <coughs> and Middle Eastern politics, so it may not seem quite so obvious. So it seems in um, reading your introduction that you learned skills from a number of friends, um, and I wondered if you think that that's a very Jewish way of learning to cook and adapt recipes, because my experience is that there are so few family recipes that were written down, and cooking, you know, for me, and I feel like it's true for others, was kind of learned in the kitchen um, haphazardly, either watching, helping, or, you know, sort of otherwise standing, watching my mother or my grandmother, or in some cases, my grandfather cook. Um, and I wondered if that helped you learn the techniques and have the confidence to try new twists on some of the standards. I don't know that I would say it's a Jewish thing. I think I would attribute it more to me being kind of a scrappy person. You know, probably by the time I realized that I would love to go to culinary school, it really wasn't a financial option for me. But um, I recognized how much I didn't know. And over the years, I became very close with several uh, several um, people who had gone to culinary school and were just really um, generous with their time. And I'm not a, a particularly sensitive person in terms of my ego. So um, one of the things that working for the Samuel Bronfen Foundation, for Edgar and, and for his executive director, Donna Rauscher, really taught me was that if you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards, meaning you always need to be learning. And if you're not learning, then you're really, you know, you're doing yourself a disservice. So I, I view it, I mean, that in and of itself is very Jewish, but it's definitely about the education and wanting to be better and better. And also having to piece together an education that might have, you know, had I had the foresight of knowing I wanted to be a baker and food writer, I might have, you know, invested in culinary school instead of, um, you know, <clears throat> studying uh studying it as amazing an experience as it was. So um, I think it's, um, I think it was really about, um, these are all the things I know that I don't know. I, I don't have the ability to go and go to proper school to learn it. So how do I, how do I supplement this education so that I can learn it? And I, I still feel like I'm in that process of, you know, I take classes, I talk to chefs, um, I'm always trying to improve and do better and learn and then translate what I've learned in yeah, for for other people. Um, I think one of the things that has been one of the things that was very intentionally set out for the book. My, my sister-in-law Becca Goldberg actually worked on the book with me, um, and as a an editor of a website that focuses very heavily on video and visuals, is I wanted people to have the experience um, of feeling confident about shaping and, and rolling and the, all of the different doughs in the book. And I have the experience of watching all these, you know, viral videos on Facebook. And you watch them, and of course there's a superficiality to it, but there's actually also, if you're interested in learning and, and doing better and learning how to do things in the kitchen, um, to see it is to understand. We're so visual now, right? Mm-hmm. Even the way that cookbooks are written, if you look at how cookbooks were written 50, 60 years ago, it's completely different. There was a, a level of knowledge assumed that people just knew how to do things, both in terms of measurements but also the technique. Now, a lot of that knowledge is lost because people cook and bake much less. 
but also we rely more heavily on the visuals of, you know, our of online presences and websites and 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 of the way that cookbooks are written. So each chapter of Modern Jewish Baker is written in a way that there's a step-by-step guide to shaping everything in the book. And people have given the feedback that, like, this was very simple. I finally understood. I felt like I could really do it. And that makes me so happy. So I, maybe that does speak to your initial question of, you know, how, how you learn these things that were passed on but not necessarily written down. And I, and I, um, I want people to have that experience in a way that uh, is digestible for them, meaning that it's visual and they feel like they walk away with the confidence to be able to really do it. Well, I, no, I think it's safe to say that you do succeed in doing that because you encourage that kind of creativity and you give the basics and then you expand on it, which leads me to ask you about Hala, which you have this amazing number of recipes in the book. Um, I think there's mm-hmm. probably over 20 of them, and they're unexpected. They are all delicious, and obviously you've had some fun with this. Um for instance, the hala with horseradish and dill spoke to me. Again, mm. um, like what pushes you in the direction of trying these out? I love that you do this. I think it's a few things. Um, the story that I tell in the book, and this is this is a hundred percent true story. Another cookbook author came up to me at an event a few years ago, probably about four years ago, and said to me, "You know, Shannon, I'm so curious." Why is it challah for you? Why are you always experimenting with challah? You know, my mom made the same challah every week growing up. Maybe she put raisins in it, but it was the same challah. And that's the same challah that I make for my family. And, you know, at the time, I didn't have a very good answer for her because I hadn't really reflected on it before. But in that moment, I was like, you know, I better have a better answer to this. Um, to this question, because it's probably not going to be the first time, the last time that I that I receive it. There's something very, um, oh my God, like amazingly sincere and lovely about what she's saying, right? Like the the challah she makes for her children is the same challah recipe that was their grandmother's recipe, and that might have been the great great grandmother's recipe. I don't have that because my grandmother didn't make challah, and truth be told, she's not really the best cook. And um, uh, my mom, of course, wasn't Jewish, so she didn't make challah. So I don't have a muscle memory around what challah has to taste like. You know, the way that I, I can tell you what chicken soup should smell like in the house. I can tell you as a New Yorker what a good bagel should taste like, right? But I, I don't have that same thing in my head and in my mouth. I'm like, no, 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 this isn't really challah. And so in some ways that's sad because I'm not walking through life with that um, with that legacy of great challah in my family. But on the other hand, I'm not shackled to a singular singular notion of that challah only has to be this. Um, the other part of it is that I was very fortunate to get paired up with a woman named Danya Schultz, who started a dinner series called Pop-Up Shabbat several years ago um, here in New York, and each dinner would have a different theme. And she would say to me, okay, this is the theme for the dinner. It's going to be Russian. It's going to be Southern comfort food. It's going to be this. Come up with a challah to go with it. And it was a very fun project for me because it really allowed me to be very free in my thinking. And there was nobody saying, like, no, 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 oh, that's too crazy. You can't do that. And after that, I really kind of let loose experimenting and not being afraid when things didn't work. 
um, I just was like, let's just try a different challah every week, and some are going to be delicious, and some are going to be not. And that's okay. And just give myself the freedom to have fun and experiment. And I feel like that's one of the things I try to emphasize for people is to, like, you know, if you think a chef or a baker doesn't fail sometimes, like, you're crazy. Like, only greatness only comes out of trying it over and over again until it's perfect. So, um, you know, I just look for ways that are fun or interesting for my generation and an older generation to, you know, be excited about Jewish food, be excited about Shabbat, and do it in their own way, whatever whatever that looks like. And you do encourage that again, which is great. And um, I thank you for what you wrote about Hamantaschen, because I confess that I'm not a huge fan because I find them to, usually they're homemade, they're heavy, the filling seems lacking, a little bit sort of, forgive me, but straight out of the jar. Um, so I loved yeah. the intro to your chapter where you said, Hamantaschen have not traditionally been the most coveted of Jewish treats. So <laughs> how did you go about succeeding in making them edible and enjoyable? This is, this is one of my favorite stories um, because it also comes from um, an intermarried family. And there are several stories in my book that are about the delicious things that happen, even when Jews marry non-Jews, God forbid, you know, I'm, 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 I'm quite, um, I, I don't really have any sympathy for that argument that, you know, every time a Jew marries a non-Jew, we're, uh, we're failing the Jewish people in some way. Actually, wonderful things happen also. So this, the, my Hamantaschen recipe comes from my friend's mom, Susan Corrigan, who was a nice Catholic girl, like my mom, who met a nice Jewish boy at a party when they were in college, and they, they, they met, they fell in love, she converted, and they raised a Jewish family. And I had said to my friend Rachel when we were living in Washington, D.C., oh, I hate Hamantaschen. I've never had good Hamantaschen. She said, I'm going to teach you to make my mom's recipe, and you're going to love them. And she was right. And the part about the story that I love is that Susan Corgan also didn't have a Jewish mom or grandma to go back to and say, how do I make hamantaschen? She also didn't like the way that hamantaschen tasted because they could traditionally be quite dry, yeasty, crumbly, not something that is like, mm, this is so delectable, I want to eat more and more of this. So she went to her Betty Crocker cookbook and found a dough that was pliable and could be shaped into hamantaschen, and that's what my hamantaschen is based on, you know, and some would be, or, or some get upset, you know, it's not the hamantaschen that came from Austria and Europe. Um, on the other hand, the story of hamantaschen is that, you know, the Jews adopted a pastry that happened to look a little bit like Haman's hat and sounded a little bit like Haman, you know, mun, meaning poppy seed. Um, and so, you know, when the authenticity of Jewish food is questioned, I also, I often like to challenge, well, what does that really mean? So, the Betty Crocker-inspired hamantaschen are delicious, and they are such a fun way to celebrate Purim, and where they come from is sort of um, both relevant and irrelevant, because, um, you know, the, the part that's important is the enjoying Jewish food and celebrating in the holiday or just celebrating you know, in our communities. Um, and they're so moist, and I just love having fun at prom time, decorating them and going crazy, because that's, that's what prom's all about, 
And my five-year-old loves it. It's her favorite time to bake in the kitchen with me. And you could, could for the rest of us, make hamantash and something that we actually want to bake and eat. I hope so. Yeah. So yeah. the other thing, and I relate a lot to what you write about in the book and then the recipes that follow, so thank you. Uh, tackling the bagel. All right, I confess, this is one that I just think must be absolutely daunting. Uh, how did How did you do it? What gave you the courage? Um, I'm, a, I'm a very transparent person. So um, the, what gave me the courage was that my publisher said, you can do bagels, right? And I said, yeah, of course. And then I had to go <laughs> home and figure out how to make bagels. Um, when people ask me to do something, my answer is usually like, yes, of course I can do it. And then I just try to figure it out. Um, it, this was the most uh, difficult recipe in the book. It's the most difficult recipe to make, but it's so satisfying. I really wanted the bagels to look and taste like a New York style bagel. Uh, I wanted them to be crispy. I wanted them to be chewy. I wanted them to, to be something that you would, it would be really special to make at home. One of the things that we hear at the Nasher is how hard it is to find good bagels outside of the New York metro area or Montreal, where, you know, of course, Montreal-style bagels are so popular and delicious. And I wanted people to be able to make this at home. Um, the key to it is really the steps, less so than the recipe itself, um, which is what I discovered after about <clears throat> eight weeks of making bagels uh, every week, sometimes two times a week, to get the recipe and the method exactly perfect. Um, and it's so fun, and a lot of people are doing it. And I'm just so happy people are eating more bagels. <laughs> it's a good thing. What's the craziest recipe for you? Um, in the book? In the book or maybe one that you're tackling now? Um, um, in the book, what's the craziest recipe? Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit wacky, but it's so delicious. Um, the spicy pizza rugula. I know savory rugelach sound a little bit weird, um, but they're so good. They really taste like a little bite of pizza, almost like those, like, disgusting frozen pizza rolls that you might, I don't know, buy when you were a kid or when we were kids. Um, but it's really like a fun, savory treat you could have, like, at a party alongside a cheese platter or something like that. Probably the wackiest one is the buffalo blue cheese babka. I know people have kind of been like, is that good? But it is so good if you like spicy things. And it's definitely out there. But some of my being out there in the book or in, you know, in my life and, and on the nasher is less about like, okay, you have to make this recipe as much as it's like, hey, just like have fun with it. And, you know, it will be delicious and, and make it yours, you know, whether that's buffalo blue cheese or it's whatever ingredients inspire you or you have in your pantry or at your you know local um food market whatever just like just have fun it doesn't have to be serious which is it runs it's a thread that runs through your book and much appreciated for our listeners uh where can they find your blog the my my blog is www.thenosher.com uh where you'll find news and lists and tips and recipes from myself, but more importantly, writers who live all, all over the world from very diverse Jewish backgrounds. And um, you can buy the book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore. 
Um, and also Modern Jewish Baker, Hollow, Babka, Bagels, and more is available through the Yiddish Book Center's um, online and uh, on-site bookstore. If you're online, you can order it at yiddishbookcenter.org. Uh, just click the shop section of our site. So, Shannon, thank you so much for joining me today and for the book uh, and for getting me in the kitchen to do some things that I otherwise would have been afraid to do. And uh, I hope that next time you'll actually join me in the kitchen. That would be way too much fun. I, I mean, give me any excuse to get back up to Western Massachusetts. We'll make it a date. Great. See you then. Thanks again. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. My name is Michael Yashinsky, Education Specialist at the Yiddish Book Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. While you're there, I recommend listening to Episode 16, Lisa Newman's 2012 conversation with Aaron Lansky and graphic designer Alex Isley, who created the Yiddish Book Center's logo, the adorable, smiling goat, Siggy. Until next time, be well, be healthy, Zeitgesinnt! <laughs>